Welcome to Hello from the Pluriverse, a podcast about sharing the stories of designers and design thinkers from different backgrounds around the world. I'm Leslie Ann Noel, a designer from Trinidad and Tobago and a professor of practice at Tulane University in New Orleans. Welcome to the Hello from the Pluriverse podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Max Esperanza, first year uh, Master's of Business Analytics student at Tulane University. I am a design thinking graduate assistant working with Professor of Practice Leslie Ann Noel. Um, I plan to be a business intelligence analyst in the future and work my way up the corporate ranks at a major company. I was born in Haiti and I have a military background. I'm very interested in real estate, art, and sculpture. Here with me again is my co-host, Michaeline. Michaeline, how are you? Hi, Max. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, my name is Michaeline Engelmeyer. I am a first-year student in the Master of Public Health Nutrition program. I'm also a design thinking graduate working with Dr. Noel, and I hope to one day work in the area of international nutrition as a registered dietitian. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mozambique, and I'm super excited to be back and discussing yet another designer and their work. Well, great to have you, Michaeline. Today, we will be listening to a podcast from Professor Omari Souza. Uh, Omari Souza is a professor of design and design research at Texas State University. He is from New York and is a first-generation college student, as well as a first-generation American, because his parents are from both from Jamaica. Professor Souza graduated from Kent State University with a Master's of Fine Arts in Design. My name is Amari Souza. I'm originally a New Yorker. I grew up in the Bronx. Um, Family's from Jamaica, first-generation American. I'm currently a professor of design and design research at Texas State University. Um, I'm finishing my first year here. I've been doing design since possibly 05. Um, I went to Cleveland Institute of Art, which was a five-year institution at the time, um, where I started learning uh, design, uh, photography, and video. And then I went to Kent State University, where I got my MFA in design um, in 2017. But between then, I worked as an in-house designer at Case Western University. Uh, well, my f- I'm the first generation of my family to go to college. Um, I had a cousin who was about 10 years older than, than I was. And, I looked up to him. He uh, he drew often, um, so I drew often, and he got into college. And the major he chose was graphic design. So growing up, I knew that I was going to do it too because he did it. Currently, and I guess the projects I'm most proud of is I I emphasize doing design for social good and innovation. So how can things that we make be utilized in order to make impacts on the lives of other people? Um, Recently, I taught a class called Design for Experience. Um, it was a class over the summer where we teamed up with uh, uh, HUD um, to, uh, or a, a subset of HUD, um, to address uh, quality of life needs for residents in a uh, lower income community in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, they were proposing uh, changes uh, that they would like and they were applying for a grant. So the it was a cohort of researchers uh, in the city of Cleveland um, that wanted to propose ideas on what could be done for these residents in order to qualify for a, I believe, a $400 million grant. Um, I reached out and asked if my students could participate. And um, we 
offered a few simple um, changes that we felt could be made uh, from a design standpoint to improve the quality of life. Um, that actually just won a national award with the design incubation, the solution. Oh, awesome. So uh, one of the teams um, that collaborated on on the project was the um, was a I believe the program of sociology at Case Western State University, and they participated in a series of interviews and um, surveying uh, with the residents of the community, um, the Woodhill um, community in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so the, the biggest thing was what are the needs of the residents from their perspective? Um, one of those needs happened to be um, an ability to um, have a designated space where they could communicate and build with their, their uh, neighbors, but also um, a space where they could actually communicate with um, the people that manage the property as well as uh, officers that own the neighborhood. Um, a second concern that we took up was uh, the uh, rate of illiteracy and uh, child readiness from preschool to kindergarten. So for the first solutions, um, my students designed a physical chair. A that, chair? Uh-huh. Uh, chair, um, if installed, uh, would function as a space to communicate uh, for residents once sitting together, but also a communication piece on the back. So the back of the chair um, would have these movable objects uh, that would function for surveys uh, to let the, the people that manage the property know how residents felt about their, their dwelling spaces. Um, it would function as introductory spaces for officers that are patrolling the space, um, photos of the officers, um, hobbies that they're interested in, uh, badge numbers, things of that nature to familiarize the residents with the officers that are in the community. Um, and the third one happened to be um, monthly and weekly announcements of what was going on in the community. So residents wanted to invite others to a particular thing or if the property managers wanted to let residents know about social programs that were happening on the like on the within the community, they would all be able to figure these things out around the chairs that they've already be coming to to kind of uh, sit and, um, and and talk. Um, the community, while these were um, apartment complexes, there were no real spaces for people to sit and kind of come together. So this coming together space um, ended up being this multi-pronged approach to help facilitate community. Uh, the second solution that was offered by the class was a, um, a game called Off the Block. Off the Block? Off the Block. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a series of sight words um, which are used to teach uh, preschoolers um, fundamental words on reading. Well, fundam like get them familiar with words as they're learning to read. Uh, we would give these kids a card and the parents would read to them uh, questions um, and ask these kids to identify, connect words with colors and things of that nature. Every time they completed one of these cards, we would give them a block. But this block would function as a building block for their career. So if um, they completed a card, we would give them a block for block would represent elementary school. Then they would complete one for uh, junior high school, one for high school, and then at that point in time, uh, they would fill another card out, complete another card, and they would get a block for a career choice. Either they're going to study a trade or they're going to college. And then once in college, they then decide what type of career that they're going to afterwards. So they're not only being familiarized with words going into kindergarten so that they're up to date with their um, contemporaries, 
but they're also being given the initial um, tools to blueprint possible careers for themselves. So if I want to be a doctor, I know what steps I have to go through in order to become a doctor. If I want to be a mechanic, I have the steps. I, I know the steps necessary. I honestly myself would be the point person flying to Cleveland and back. Um, Indigo Bishop was our point person, um, amazing person, and she had an amazing team that worked with her as well. Um, she was able to gather a cohort of residents from the community that she was working with and would allow me to come to meetings with those residents and with the other uh, collaborators that she had. And we were able to bounce ideas, uh, propose concepts to her, um, speak with other residents, other uh, collaborators, and then bring information back to the students. Um, Indigo also made herself available via video chat for the students to ask questions. Um, and also for my students, um, I'm teaching in San Marcos, Texas, which is a small town 30 minutes south of Austin and 30 minutes north of San Antonio. And within this area, there are a ton of communities that kind of fall within the same, um, same demographic uh, conditions. Um, communities might be a bit more rural in, in, some of, uh, in some cases, but the levels of poverty uh, can be found in these communities as well. So also sending students out to observe uh, not necessarily what the living conditions of poverty looks like in Texas, because that would be completely different than the North, but also um, what are the health um, issues for people that are dealing with poverty um, that fall within that demographic? Uh, what does what does child of that nature? So having them go out and then you know not only build ideas based off of the information that's being given to them, but working with people that fall within this category and then seeing if the concepts that they're building um, are scalable um, throughout people, through, throughout regions where this demographic may, may, may have commonality. A lot of things start with observational studies and also some level of um, I would say observational studies and then placing yourself in the shoes of the people that you're collaborating with. Um, being ingrained within that community as much as possible is always the best thing possible. Getting feedback from people within that community um, is one of the best things possible. And outside of anthropological studies, in terms of um, ethnographic um, observational studies and things of that nature, I think making room for the people within the community to function as collaborators within the group rather than um, subjects that you're attempting to solve a solution for um, is really important. Um, being ingrained in a community, so let's say if you're able to stay in the community for a week um, and you have to do grocery shopping um, and you establish contacts and you go with them and you, you, you see the process by which they're shopping um, can give you a lot of insight but also brainstorming with that particular person, asking questions, you know, what would make things easier for you, and then prototyping with them uh, to come up with a better solution um, is something that I think is really powerful. I think one area that design thinking tends to uh, fall short is in that participatory piece where you're not, you're not, if I'm just observing my user, the user still has no power they're giving small insights and I'm making the decision for them. But if I allow the user to participate in the making process, then they become invested in the solution and what I'm providing to them 
is more effective due to the fact that their 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 hands are a part of it. Right. Um, so I think I think that's that's the recommendation I would make. I tell all of my students that they have to start with their X, Y, and Z, and their X, Y, and Z or is is their thesis statement. So um, X is typically the topic that you're attempting to research. Uh, y is the methods in which you're going to research those uh, those methods, and Z ends up being um, what you're attempting to understand and facilitate by providing a solution. Um, and when you do those things, uh, it it makes the project less amp like less vague. If my if as a designer, my interest is in lowering the number of um, car crashes uh, annually, I that becomes my topic of, of research. I can I can use design research methods, um, but what I'm attempting to understand, I can use design research methods, but those methods have to be tied to my specific area of expertise. Um, I can't say that I'm gonna build an engine that's more effective or I'm gonna build uh, an airbag that's more effective because I don't have the specialty to do that. But I can say that as a designer, I could function I can work on better functioning signage or um, improving the interfaces within the vehicle as far as speedometers are concerned and things of that nature uh, to better communicate to um, the drivers when they're being unsafe. Um, and if that becomes my my why, then the Z, which is lowering the um, number of crashes, um, the X and the Y makes how I'm going to get to Z a little bit more apparent. Um, I think my research kind of focused on um, a particular perspective, um, but there are other people that have done research and have found other contributing factors. Uh, what I researched um, mainly wasn't necessarily just why there weren't more people of color within the field of design, but specifically where people of color were going to study and what the field of design could learn from those fields. So I found for uh, African-American students, um, which are in colleges at higher numbers than ever before, they typically tend to lean towards um, social serving fields, um, sociology, pre-law, um, psychology, uh, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, when I began doing uh, interviews and surveys with uh, people on my campus and extending it beyond, I ended up finding out that a lot of people that are studying uh, these majors were doing it for um, a few reasons. One was either they had a professor or a professional that they came in contact with at a, at a young age who made an impression on them and study a similar field. Uh, two was something happened to them personally that they were help, hoping that uh, a class would help contextualize uh, a trauma that they've experienced. Um, and that class ended up opening them up to the possibility of a career within that field. Or three, they felt that this major or course of study would help them advocate uh, for a, a disenfranchised um, party. So if that were, if that was common amongst, and if that becomes a pattern amongst African Americans studying this field, and this is where the majority of African Americans are going, it becomes an, an evident reason why the field of design wouldn't attract them, especially considering that design positions itself as being an extension of commercial capitalism to an extent, or just capitalism as a whole. Um, 
come study with us. We'll teach you how to work with Fortune 500 companies and make amazing products for them. Um, and in many cases, products that people that look like you may not be able to afford coming from communities that you've come from. Um, as a professor, I've then used findings to make my classes uh, more socially conscious, giving the same skills, the same, the same uh, learning objectives, but teaching it from a community standpoint. And it's garnered a lot more interest from people of color than um, the traditional method of teaching design. I think if you, I think it begins with professors uh, coming in and showing uh, students how to do particular things. I think it begins with organizations like uh, AIGA and other big uh, graphic design based organizations um, and other design organizations in general. It doesn't have to just be for graphic design, finding ways that uh, questioning what the social responsibility is of their field to uh, concerns that uh, other demographics that they may hope to acquire um, may have. I think without that, the field of design may, I don't have, I'm saying this as an assumption, I don't have any information to back this up, but I feel like considering the changing demographics of the country in general and the number of programs that we have, if the field is unable to attract a more diverse populace, then it may have difficulty filling its classrooms within the next 20 to 30 years. So this question of how do we address these concerns of these students coming from different um, ethnic groups um, is, is, is really is really important, at least in my opinion. So growing up in New York, uh, in the areas of New York that I grew up in, I knew I was black in theory. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, looking in the mirror, I could tell that I'm black. I knew, I knew that I was right. black, that I ate, I knew the culture that I came from. But I, I didn't understand that I was other until I went to school in Ohio. Um, so the idea of being black and then being treated the way that other people perceive black people to be, um, or were two completely different things for me. Um, in New York City, the communities I lived in were extremely diverse. My high school, um, art and design high school, uh, our lunch table looks like the UN um, in terms of who we sat with, who we talked to, and you know, uh, everybody was welcomed. When I got to Cleveland, I was one of five black students. Um, and by the time I graduated, I was the only graduating black male in the five-year program. And there was one graduating black female, um, which was tough. Um, I had a roommate my first semester who thought Malcolm X was a rapper. Um, and for many of my... Uh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Not my students, but the students I studied with. Um, I was the first person of color they ever met. So, uh, again, going from knowing that you're black and, and, and in theory understanding that there are people in the world that perceive blackness to be a particular thing and then being thrown into that world um, at the age of 17 and having to deal with that for five years, um, it, 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 it ends up influencing you a lot. Um, your work ends up being a way to contextualize feeling marginalized in a, in a homogenous place. And um, even now, uh, I, don't, I don't have the same situation. I'm teaching at a predominantly minority institution. Um, Texas State is a uh, predominantly Hispanic college. 
um, which is awesome. But uh, it's still my way of contextualizing my experiences and then helping my students contextualize theirs as well. So the field of design itself is a field of communication. We, we right. package and we distribute ideas for people that are attempting to attract people to those particular ideas. Um, we're essentially storytellers. And these stories that we tell um, end up being what people base their identities off of, right? Um, we, as Americans, you know, there's, uh, there are these classic paintings that we, we kind of hold up to kind of uh, encapsulate who we are in the world land of the free and yada 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 when in reality there are a lot of other countries that are free just as free as we are and if not freer in some senses um but the stories that we consume and the representation that we see within those stories um build our perception of self and build the perception that we have for other people i think as a field um what we need to do is begin to question what perception is that we're building and how that impacts other people and i think currently there's a lot of um we're kind of at a head where um, there are a lot of people protesting, not just protesting. I when I say protesting, I'm not just speaking in terms of, you know, sign holding, but protesting in terms of speaking up against um, particular practices because there are a lot of narratives that were established at a time period where equity wasn't uh, given to people of color or people of different genders. Um, and now people acquiring particular um, voices and having the ability to speak out and then begin to argue representation of themselves or, or give um, alternative perspectives on their identities, there, there's a friction point. Um, I think as a society, it's really necessary for us to kind of question the stories that we were told, um, questions the stories that we continue to spread and then question the impact of those stories, and, and especially considering shifting demographics of our nation. Um, and that's those are things that my, my research kind of explores and attempts to highlight. The greatest challenge is navigating around people whose identities are locked into those uh, narratives, locked into those stories. Um, I think that those are the most difficult people to, to sway, and those are the people that will fight hardest to keep things the way right. that they are. So if um, with America, per se, um, there's, a, there's a book that I'm currently reading. It's titled Unthinking Eurocentrism. But uh, in the beginning of the book, it, it talks about how this Eurocentric idea, or the, the, the perception of Eurocentrism, is within itself a, a false uh, dichotomy uh, due to the fact that Eurocentrism, the Euro European perspective wasn't just influenced by Europeans living within Europe. with uh, the languages they came encounter with and uh, the, the, the world around them. Um, but the way that it's um, regurgitated, the history of things, the way that it's regurgitated, it omits some of these other cultures that were influential and because of that, it makes it seem that, you know, credit is due to a small subsection of the world. And because of that, there are few people that buy into this ideology and buy into the fact that without the small subject, a sub subset of the world leading the rest of the world, um, the world would be lost. When in reality, all of the progress in the world is not due to one region, one country, one ideology. Right. Ideologies uh, building on one another to, to find a solution. Um, but there are people that would fight nail and tooth to keep this idea because it's 
it's the myth that they hold on to that gives them something to be proud of. So I think design thinking uh, puts makers in a position where they have to think and broader about what they're making than they have before in the past. Um, I do think design thinking has its limitations and um, its issues that, that, that it needs to expand upon, but I feel like the critical making, especially around the iterative design process, um, is really helpful for people, especially backtracking a little bit. Whenever I teach a design thinking class, one of the first things I teach my students is the concept of perpetual beta. And perpetual beta is the concept that there is never a final deliverable. The deliverable that you give is always a work in progress. And then I use an example of the iPhone. Um, the hardware is the deliverable that you have, but the software is consistently being updated, consistently being improved, because the world is continuing to improve. Uh, that iterative process is extremely necessary for social innovation due to the fact that society is always changing. And you can't assume that I can make this one thing right now that will work permanently forever. Um, it, has to, it has to be something that will evolve with society. And, and for that reason, that's where the, the social innovation comes from. Um, the, 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 pursuit of, um, the pursuit of consistent improvement, consistently being a perpetual beta, is where social innovation comes from expand your horizons as much as possible. I think what makes a good design thinker a good design thinker is not just their ability to make or their ability to design, but their ability to think broadly. Um, if you are interested in philosophy, um, expand your understanding of philosophy as much as possible while also attempting to, to expand your, your understanding of design thinking. Um, if you happen to be interested in philosophy and design thinking, and you're also interested in the language, expand your understanding of the language as well. Um, the everything that you study or everything that you can put into your toolkit changes the way that you approach the problems and changes the way that you changes the tools that you may have to to produce a solution um, and understand different users and different demographics. So the more that you can expand yourself um, and expand your possibilities as the well, what an amazing listen that was. Um truly enjoyed it and I related a lot to what uh, Professor Souza was speaking about. Um, Michaeline, uh, how do you see that place in identity impacted uh, Professor Souza's work? That's a great question. Well, moving to Cleveland, Professor Souza was saying that he went from feeling like he was, you know, part of like the UN, his friend group was so representative um, and inclusive to being the only black man to graduate as part of his five-year program. Um, in Cleveland, and that must have been just such a jarring transition, but it seems like it really spurred him to view his identity in a new light and not as just someone who is, I, I believe he puts it theoretically black. Um, it seems like he was almost forced to confront his identity in a way that has really impacted his work moving forward. Well, I, I can, I can, uh, I can back that claim of that, you know, being an African American in a lot of these situations, you are almost always forced to confront your identity because, uh, you know, just like him being the only graduate in his five-year program, uh, in my pro current grad program right now, there's 45 students and two of them is black. And the other black uh, student is remote. So I know what it feels like to walk in a room and have no one look like you. So I do believe that identity is the biggest impact. 
uh, to his work because it all revolves around the black community and how being disenfranchised affects African-Americans in all aspects of their lives. Um, So what he's been trying to do is to try to help prepare African-American students for the world that are around around them. And he tries to make his classroom very socially conscious. One of the biggest things that he tries to conquer is how we can get minorities comfortable enough to choose a major that isn't so easy because it seems like the norm is uh, African-American students typically choose uh, easier majors that they can uh, relate to. Um, He believes that professors and everyone in the social settings that have impact on the lives of children, uh, it begins with them uh, having all of us accept what social responsibility is. And I, I truly believe that identity is is the biggest aspect of his work, and it, I related closely to what he he was saying, and I truly uh, feel grateful for his work. You made some really good points, and um, thank you for sharing your experience as mm-hmm. well. I can imagine, you know, being, you know, the only black student in your program that's got to definitely have an impact on how you experience grad mm-hmm. school. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story, and. Um, you know, how you're able to relate to Professor Souza. What do you feel like you learned from Professor Souza specifically about design, design thinking, or social innovation? So the the thing that I took, uh, you know, stood out the most to me is um, the reasons why uh, African-American students typically choose easier majors. So from his work, he, he noticed that uh, the three reasons that African Americans and other minorities typically choose easier major majors uh is that a professor left an impression on a student so for example when college recruiters come to campus or or they go to a career fair the professors or the people in that program typically make a good impression on that student and typically that leads to them choosing that major um secondly he says another reason for this is that the student was drawn to this field because of personal personal uh, trauma. So for example, uh, a lot of uh, African-American students typically tr- choose to major in psychology and sociology. And he truly believes that they are drawn to that field because of personal trauma, because of what they have experienced. And finally, he says these other reasons why African-Americans choose easier majors is that the student was seeking to help a disenfranchised group. So a lot of these uh, African-American students are motivated to help the black community. Uh, they want to make a difference. Maybe they didn't come from the best background and they want to make a difference, help their families out. So a lot of that is the reason that they choose some some specific major. And that's also the reason that they choose to go to certain schools is because they want to uh, help their disenfranchised group and their disenfranchised family. So I I learned a lot from his reasons because it makes total sense. Um, I really didn't think about, you know, this beforehand, but listening to him and what he had to say, it's really eye-opening and I 
agree a thousand percent with what what uh what what his research claims. So, um, what about you, Michaeline? What 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 do you feel like you learned from him about design, design thinking, and social innovation? Yeah, I I feel like you and I maybe had different takeaways from um his talk because I didn't necessarily think he was saying anything about people choosing easier majors. Well, first of all, I don't even know if I'd consider like sociology or psychology necessarily easier majors. I think they require a very different skill set than, you know, maybe what you or I are studying. You know, you're studying business, I'm studying public health. I think they just require different skill sets. Um, but I, I think what his main focus was is just to find out ways to attract people, of students of color to the field of design and make it more palatable. Um, because one thing he said that really stood out to me was that um, there's uh, a huge pull in design centered around commercial capitalism and how it's centered on creating products that may not be designed or affordable for you know lower income individuals or people of color um, for for certain reasons. So. I thought that was a really interesting perspective he had about just wanting some more representation in the field of design. Um, I also really liked that Professor Sousa's position of adding tools to the toolkit is a great way of approaching design thinking. Um, it's, it's so interesting to think that experiencing a new culture or learning a new language and gaining a new skill can be employed to better develop skills as, de as a designer or design thinker. And that's kind of all life really is. I personally want to leave grad school with some hard skills to make me more employable. And I listen to relationship podcasts so I can work from an informed place to make sure I'm successful in my relationships and my friendships. Uh, so all of life is really skill curating and skill gathering. And it's a great way to think about design as well. Um, and as two students who are not formal designers, um, just curious, what advice did you take away from this episode from, um, from Professor Sousa for non-designers who are using design methods. So, um, you uh, you really brought an interesting point and interesting uh, perspective to that last question. Uh, you know, s speaking of commercial capitalism, we can get back to to that point later. But that was a very interesting uh, aspect uh, that you've had. So, the um, advice that I took away the most is. To you know, know who you are, okay. So it you 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 don't need anyone to tell you that hey you're a black person, hey you're a white person, you know. It, you, the you you got to know who you are, and there's gonna be some challenges to that, but you gotta uh be able to face them with open arms, because we cannot change what race we were born into, we cannot change how we were created or what circumstances we are in. So the biggest takeaway I took from uh, him speaking is that you got to be aware of yourself and let that be uh, serve as a form of pride and motivation. And don't let that be in any obstacle. It, it is who you are. It is what you were born into. So uh, take pride in that and uh, accept that with open arms. And yes, I'm theoretically black. And that is something that I'm aware of. And that shouldn't that should not be a, uh, you know, that should not hinder any, any progress of any kind. So that was my biggest advice. So what about you, Michaeline? What was your biggest takeaway from his talk? Um, kind of the other side of that maybe was 
Professor Sousa's perspective on Eurocentrism and how even that has come to be viewed in a vacuum as solely existent because of, you know, Europe and European cultures itself, not, you know, everything else that was happening at the same time that, you know, um, this concept came to light. Uh, it, it was surprising because I'd never heard of that take on Eurocentrism before. Um, so I thought that was super valuable and, and interesting to hear his perspective on that. Um, would you say there was anything that you wanted to learn more about? Yeah. Or like if, if you could ask Professor Souza another question, uh, so, what do you think it would be? So, yeah, this brings me to uh, our final point is you, as you mentioned earlier, uh, commercial capitalism. Um, I do think that capitalism is a big reason why people of color and other minorities don't go to school as much. I think that uh, when we talk about education in those low-income areas, it's not where it needs to be. And that's typically because people already have money. The money that's to be made is goes directly to them. So a lot of the reasons why minorities and black people don't go to school is because they cannot afford it or there's no government help to, you know, get them through school without some form of debt. debt. And I, I am a supporter of capitalism because I do feel like with capitalism, this is one of the few countries where you can start out with nothing and end up with a whole, with a, with a whole lot. Um, I do support capitalism, uh, but I do think it is a big reason why a lot of these minorities and black kids don't typically do as well and there's no uh there's basically no form of social mobility and so what i would love to do is i would love to professor souza i would love to hear more from him about what he thinks of capitalism and what are his what are his solutions to uh the problems that capitalism presents so that was the biggest interest to me because i'm an economics major uh undergrad and i have studied capitalism and I do support capitalism, but it there it has its flaws. We can all agree on that. So I would just pretty much love to speak to him and see what he has to say on that. Uh, so what what about you? Is there anything interesting you'd want to learn more about or anything, uh, any questions you'd ask him, Michael Lee? Yeah, I completely agree. That point really stood out to me. And I would love to learn more about separating the design field from capitalism. So how we can get as much as we can out of design thinking without necessarily a capitalistic gain from it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just such a, such an interesting, interesting thought. Um, and it, it almost, I think the question I would ask Professor Souza is how could we decolonize capitalism? How could we repurpose capitalism to work in favor of all people within the United States, including minorities, including people of color. Um, because I feel like currently the system only benefits those who are starting off ahead. So uh, his observation that capitalism is what design is centered around is really interesting to me. And I would just love to learn how we could decapitalize the field in the same way that we're being invited to decolonize our minds and our approaches to, th our approaches to things. And uh, in some ways, I feel like they go hand in hand. Well, Michael, that was a very great point uh, by you. Uh, I love how you use the word decolonize because that is a big aspect of the history of this country. It's it's in our very foundation, our very base. So that was a very great uh, point that you brought up, and I completely agree with you. 
So thank you for joining us here today on this podcast. Hopefully we can have you back for another session. Thank you, Michaeline. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, for all listeners out there, please feel free to check out our website and let us know what you thought about this episode in the comments. Well, thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this interview from our Hello from the Pluriverse series. A special thank you to Arturo Escobar, the author of Designs for the Pluriverse, for opening the space for conversations about pluriversality in design. Many thanks as well to all of our interviewees, our design thinking student team, Ruby, Lupe, Delaney, Tran, and Wissal, the students of the Fall 2019 SICE 30-10 class, Levante, Lucas, our editor, and the rest of the team at the Taylor Center at Tulane. If you have any suggestions for our program, please email your comments, suggestions, and questions to taylor at tulane.edu. And also you can visit our website at taylor.tulane.edu.